you don't need to be that big, but it just takes so much bandwidth to move your inventory all over the world and manage all of the local regulations and tax obligations. And I want a good show, damn it. Show. You went awesome, yeah. I'm excited yeah. to talk to you. Thank you, thank you for Yes. Welcome to another episode of the Ecom Show. I'm your host, Andrew Maff, and today I'm joined by the amazing Alex Yauncher of Passport Shipping. Alex, how are you doing? You ready for a good show? I am. Let's do it. I'm so excited that we got this one to work. Spoiler alert, we had technical difficulties, tried this before, it didn't work out. We're here today. That's all that matters. Alex, thank you so much for joining us. I, uh, I'm sure as you know, I like doing the stereotypical thing, pretend that no one knows who you are, no one knows anything about Passport, and uh, tell us a little bit about your background, about Passport. We'll take it from there, okay? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. So um, yeah, I'm the co-founder CEO of Passport. We handle international shipping and all the accompanying annoying things that come alongside international shipping, like duty and tax calculation and um, and all those things. Um, And we offer it to e-commerce merchants and make it really easy for them to go global. So we work with about a thousand merchants today, uh, about 103 PLs that serve the D2C world today. Um, my background before starting Passport, I actually used to run ops at a personal shopping service that helped people abroad buy products from the U.S. And it was my job to figure out a lot of the logistics. How do you get a package, big or small, cheaper, expensive, all over the world? And yeah. it was quite the challenge. So um, it... At the time, you could work with some of the well-known branded carriers, or as I figured out while running that company, you can actually go and book cargo space on, say, a um, Turkish Airways flight to Dubai, and then plug into a last mile network in Dubai and deliver that package. So um, ended up leaving that company with this idea that you can uh, build a really amazing uh, asset light international shipping carrier. Um, from the ground up, built specifically for e-commerce merchants, um, on the uh, this sort of proliferation of uh, last mile carriers that have been popping up all over the world, some amazing companies that are starting to take share from local posts and the branded carriers, uh, as well as a proliferation of everything in the middle, like the air freight providers, the middle mile trucking companies, all of that. There's just... Um, So much innovation happening in the logistics world to serve this burgeoning e-commerce business. So thought, you know, international parcel shipping, it's going to be big. So left left, uh, the personal shopping service, start a passport um, back in 2017. So almost six years or six, six plus years at this point, um, going into year seven. and, And here we are. Wow. 
So effectively, you're assisting with e-commerce sellers to be able to start to shell, uh, sell overseas. And it's basically by renting space in what is a f- basically like commercial airliners, right? That's a component. The commercial airline piece is a component of what we do. To a merchant, mm-hmm. we look just like, say, DHL. And we pick yeah. up their packages and we handle that delivery end to end. Oh, beautiful. So one of the immediate questions I think of, because I've I've had a few conversations with people on the show that help sellers with, you know, different aspects of selling globally. It is a uh, logistical and tax and like finance just nightmare trying to figure that out. At what point do you usually see like for a specific merchant that like, okay, you're at a good point where you should probably consider starting to sell international or is it nowhere near as complicated as it once was? You know, it's a great question. Um, I always, I always start with, with this. How much of your traffic as a brand, if I'm thinking about from a brand's perspective, how much of your traffic, your, of your traffic is coming from outside of the U.S.? And it's a noble thing. You could go to similar mm-hmm. web, put in your URL. I can go check a brand, right? And yeah. I'll show you a breakdown of where your traffic is coming from. Where, where What's your top of funnel? And I've never seen anything less than call it 15% of traffic coming from outside of the U.S., okay? Be it Canada, being Australia, so English-speaking countries. Um, and of course, um, uh, there's, you know, 200 plus countries of so people from all over the world are, are going on these brand sites. In some cases, when the brand is, um, has the backing of an influencer, like a YouTuber or a celebrity sponsor, something like that. I mean, it's like flipped. It's like 85% of your traffic is coming from outside of the U.S. Because yeah. it makes sense. You know, if you look at the, the usage of Instagram, I want to say something like 80% of Instagram users are outside of the U.S. 90% of TikTok users are outside of the U.S., right? So mm-hmm. even the fact that you're asking the question, at what point does it, does, you know, international start making sense? You know, it's, uh, I kind of like to flip the script on that a little bit because to some merchants, actually, the question maybe should be, at what point should you start focusing on the U.S.? And really, you should be building and focusing all your efforts on outside of the U.S. because 85% of your traffic is coming from there. And what you really want to see is like parity in the conversion rate and in the orders that you get. Again, you never really see that. That's the problem with international is that there's so many friction points like shipping, like customer support, like duty and tax calculation, regulatory compliance, all of these things. They come together and they do create headaches and you never really see, oh, 10% of my traffic is coming from uh, abroad, 10% of my sales are coming from abroad. It's not like that. It's like 10% of my um, sale, uh, my, my traffic is coming from abroad, 5% of my sales are coming from, uh, from outside of the U.S. because of these um, friction points that exist. So there's company, so there's Passport. We have competitors, of course, really, really good competitors that are also doing a really good job telling the story of, um, uh, of, uh, uh, the untapped potential of international and some platforms like Shopify obviously has their, uh, Shopify markets solution and they also have built, uh, deeply into the platform some internationalization features. 
So I would say like 15 years ago or even 10 years ago, it was really complicated. Now it's just kind of complicated. And there's companies like Passport that really are the easy button for um, not having to worry about any of these regulatory compliance things. And um, we just happen to handle uh, at Passport really every size merchant. So we have a um, turnkey Shopify app where somebody can just use that. And I, I would say, even if you're just starting out and you're getting two orders a day, why not? Why not? You'll get a third one potentially from Canada. You know, why, why close yeah. the door on Canada, especially if there's an easy button for it? Um, and then certainly it makes sense for the bigger ones. And frankly speaking, you don't really see any of the bigger ones call it the Shopify plus merchants. So 10 plus million in sales, let's say. I rarely come across one that doesn't do any international anymore. Yeah. So is the is the concept really the it's the best scenario for someone to prove the viability in other countries or is this like an end all be all? Because I would imagine if like let's say I'm a US seller and I do a ton of business in the UK at a certain point, I'm going to probably say like, let's just put a 3PL in the UK and set that up. At what point do you say like, hey, you might want to just keep inventory in this country? Or is there also something I'm missing there in, in terms of how that works? Yeah, that's definitely a um, very viable um, strategy of um, domiciling inventory in um, places around the world. Uh, mm -hmm. UK, for example, of course, like you could put something in, in Europe and handle Europe. Um, LATAM, of course, it's a viable strategy. We've seen only companies really of the magnitude as Nike. You know, Nike, of course, does that, you know, and you don't need to be that big, but it just takes so much bandwidth mm -hmm. to move your inventory all over the world and manage all of the local regulations and um, tax obligations. And you also have to um, divvy up your inventory. So there's some um, meaningful considerations uh, before um, pursuing a strategy like that. But of course, there are some major perks to it as well, such as you have your inventory closer to customers. And um, sometimes shipping could be a little bit cheaper, but when you really add up the freight to the country plus the, you know, the last mile, it ends up being kind of a wash. But the transit time is faster because your, um, your, your products are closer to the customer. So it's up to each brain to see where they're at, what the priorities are, and figure out if, um, you know, the juice is worth the squeeze on this particular one. What about if, I mean, I imagine if a majority of your marketing efforts are, let's say, US-based and you want to start sampling international, is this one of those situations where you're like, hey, put it in place. And then as you start to get those international orders, when you start to pivot your marketing into those different countries, then you've got the ability to start shipping. Because I know your example is like, hey, you know, look at SimilarWeb and see where you're getting traffic. That's definitely one way to tell. But because they weren't able to convert before, it'd be kind of rough to figure out, like, are they actually going to convert? So if you're really going to start to pivot that way, this would, I'd imagine, be one of the best things to put in place to start to prove out the viability. Am I right? Totally. Totally. You want to be able to test in the lowest 
investment sort of way possible. Yeah. And like a turnkey solution is definitely the way to go. Right before we started the episode, you mentioned uh, we were we were getting into it a little bit, and I was like, ah, let's leave this for the episode. But what? Uh, so you said there was some news going on within the industry, correct? Yeah, yeah, some big news um, right after we hung up our call last uh, last week about um, Ryan Peterson coming back to be CEO of Flexport. Really? So what does that mean for uh, for obviously Passport and just the industry as a whole? Yeah, it's a great question. First, let me caveat: Flexport is a um, small investor in Passport, um, so I'll try to be objective. But I think very <laughs> highly of Ryan and and a Flexport. Um, they also have a very strong alignment with uh, Shopify. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I saw Shopify owns seventeen percent or something like that of Flexport, thirteen percent of which I believe came via the Deliver um, acquisition. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that that Flexport Shopify alignment um, is what the industry has considered in the past as the sort of non-Amazon D2C version of the of the sort of competing um, top of funnel to supply chain stack that sort of. Com- combined part of the um, the value chains, Amazon, of course, it's all under one hood. Shopify kind of try to do that with um, Deliver and Shopify Fulfillment Network and then transfer that to a very close partner of which they own almost 20%, um, Flexport, which operates the 3PL now and, and has some of their own shipping services. So it'll be interesting to see um, how that how that all pans out. My understanding was that Dave Clark was actually going down the same strategy of building this competing um, combined value chain plus top of funnel solution as Amazon. Mm-hmm. So um, I think, you know, there, whatever d- disagreements they had, I don't think it was about that core strategic initiative for the Flexport Shopify alignment. Um, but again, it'll be really interesting to see um, what happens yeah. now. What's your your theory on where that's going to go? Because obviously, even from a fulfillment perspective, like everything is starting to kind of cross pollinate a little bit. As you've seen, you know, Amazon has done this big push on the buy with Prime thing, where obviously that's fulfilling out of FBA. Shopify seems to be loving it simply because they're now integrating it into checkout and all that stuff. Like, what's your theory on where this is all going to shake out? Are we going to start to see just these massive conglomerates fulfilling, you know, e-commerce orders, or are we going to continue to see, you know, kind of just smaller shops and last mile guys kind of solidifying everything? Very good question, Andrew. Very good question. Um, It was actually very interesting to see uh, that essentially a week before, I think it's a coincidence um, I don't think that there's any connection to this, but um, yeah. still interesting coincidence that um, the week before Dave Clark, who is ex-Amazon, um, Shopify announces um, that they're allowing Amazon Prime to be on their site, which is kind of like the whole thing around Shopify promise. 
Mm-hmm. And for your listeners who aren't aware of what Shopify promises, it's supposed to be kind of like Amazon Prime, which is this symbol, Shopify promise. It's like logotized. It's meant to represent a promise, hence the name, of a ship, a fast shipping um, speed. I actually don't know the details. Is it two days at one day? But it's something good. Yeah. Um, and they started by putting that um, that branding, that logo, onto merchants' sites that use Shopify Fulfillment Network. So you see how everything is interconnected there. And now that Shopify Fulfillment Network is Flexport, um, I don't know this for a fact, but presumably that offer still stands for the Flexport merchants now, now known as Flexport, um, that fulfill from Flexport because of this Shopify tie-up. And they would get that Shopify promise thing. So why does a merchant even want that? What's the point of Shopify promise? Well, the theory is if a merchant, uh, if a buyer sees that they get their anxiety around the delivery reduced and they're more likely to convert. I buy it. I think that that makes mm-hmm. sense. That's the power of Amazon Prime, of course. Um, and Shopify, again, um, similar to my point about um, the D2C version of Amazon, Flexport plus Shopify, this was another element of it. This manifests itself in a very valuable thing for for merchants, which is a higher conversion rate in the form of this like Amazon Prime, but D2C version. So Shopify promise, but, right? Um, so now what? Now what? Now are you gonna have two buttons on this thing? Maybe. Is that so crazy that you're gonna have two buttons? Um, you know, there's like 10 buttons for payments <laughs> and Amazon's yeah. one of them. Shop pay is one of them. PayPal's one of them. I mean, you know, Google, Facebook, and the Apple, of course, very big players are chopping up this payment thing. Um, and, uh, if that works, why couldn't it really work for shipping? So I wouldn't be surprised if frankly speaking, there was a third and a fourth one. Um, that also had their own version of promise. I know uh, yeah. FedEx uh, bought a company or or had to deal with a company called um, Roadrunner, um, mm-hmm. which was kind of trying to do Amazon Prime, but for not Amazon World. Yeah, and that was semi successful for a while. I'm not sure exactly where it is, but I wouldn't be surprised if there were more of these uh, buttons um, on the uh, on the on the checkout screen alongside shipping. So I think that that's probably where things are going to go is that there's just going to be two buttons. Um, it's okay. It's, it's not the best. Obviously Amazon would love to be the only ones, but there's no way Shopify would allow that. So if you have two buttons, why not three? So there'll probably be three at some point. And I think that yeah. that's where it's going to go. I mean, I, my opinion, like, you know, for years I've developed, um, what is effectively like a buy with buy with prime type of button, right? Like we would just make a button track it as best we could and just send them to a listing and let them work it out. We did the same thing with Walmart. We did it with jet back in the day, eBay every now and then. So adding in all those additional buttons to us, we actually saw a conversion rate lift. Plus with the added traffic, those platforms really liked it. And one of the things I started to think about is I think that Shopify and Amazon are realizing that instead of spending the money and fighting each other, 
they're actually better off working together. Mm. And Shopify is okay with Amazon improving the conversion rate of some of these sites by having the Buy With Prime on there, as long as Amazon's okay with the, the, the merchant gets to keep the customer information so they can keep them coming back to the website. Mm. So it's actually, I see it as for merchants, it's helped reduce the customer acquisition cost because your conversion mm. rate is typically improved. Mm. You get to keep all your customer information and Amazon obviously still gets the fulfillment. They still have their fees behind it. And so I find that like this kind of like uh, just they're starting to slowly work together mm. to do what really all of them have start just wanted from the beginning, which is providing the customer with the best experience possible, which also comes from a fulfillment section of like, if you do buy with prime, you're going to get it in two days. If you mm. do Shopify plus, you're going to get it with two days. I bet we're, you know, it's Walmart's always five years behind. So I'm sure Walmart will do it in five years and they'll be on there too. So like, mm-hmm. it's just going to be a matter of the user, the, the website's going to become your base of, mm here's everything you can learn about our brand. Here's our product line. And then here's all of the buttons of the places that you can buy it from, whichever mm-hmm. one you prefer to shop with. Mm-hmm. I love that. And each button and each button <clears throat> connects to a particular fulfillment center and a fulfillment guarantee that's manifested in the marketing of that button. Yep. That's really- and then they're all just fighting mm-hmm. for their annual subscription of a prime or totally. I forgot what Walmart's is called. Um, very interesting. It's going to be interesting yeah. to see how things shake out in the next few years. That's super interesting. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, Alex, look, really appreciate you having on the show. Um, I don't want to take up too much time in your super slam, but I would love to give the opportunity here, let everyone know where they can find out more about you. And of course, more about passport. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a website's the best place to go. Passport shipping spelled the way it sounds passportshipping.com And my email is Alex at passportshipping.com beautiful alex thank you so much glad we were able to pull this one off finally yeah i appreciate your time everyone else who joined of course thank you as well please make sure you do the usual and rate review subscribe on whichever podcast platform you prefer or head over to the ecomshow.com to check out all of our previous episodes but as usual i thank you all for joining us and we'll see you all next time have a good one thank you for tuning in to the ecom show Head over to ecomshow.com to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform or on the Blue Tusker YouTube channel. The Ecom Show is brought to you by Blue Tusker, a full-service digital marketing company specifically for e-commerce sellers looking to accelerate their growth. Go to bluetusker.com now for more information. Make sure to tune in next week for another amazing episode of The Ecom Show.